I'm Shivam Butt, and today I am the only commander in. Thanks for listening, everybody. We put a spotlight on community issues, but never ever talk about three banned topics, religion, politics, and Hearthstone. Now, the spoiler is that I always actually talk about these things. They just cut it out in editing. But since I'm the only one here today, that means you're going to get to hear all the I want to talk about. So if you like the show, we would love it if you went and watched it on YouTube all the way to the end, comment, rate, and subscribe. And if you play it all the way to the end, it helps the YouTube algorithm surface our content and help more people find it. Feel free to let everybody know that you've heard us. Put it on your Twitter feed, your Tumblrs, your Mastodons, wherever we are running away to these days. And the better you are, the more stars you give us, the more easy it is for other people to find us. But the best way you can help us out is by telling your friends, telling your playgroup that there's a cool Commander podcast that you listen to that you like a lot and that would love to have more listeners. If you want to help us out, feel free to go to patreon.com forward slash commanderandmtg and chip in a buck a show. Even that will help us put out brand new content every week and help Phil get out of his closet, help Sean find his way out of the UK and help me actually get a microphone that stands up straight. And if you're not a patron, we would love to know why so that we can find better ways to serve your needs. If you don't like Patreon, feel free to drop us a line at PayPal and you can go to our website at www.commanderandmtg.com forward slash donations and give us a one-time donation of whatever you want. We are an entirely listener-supported podcast and we are grateful for all the support you give us. Each week, we would normally call out three of our Patroni and let them know that we are super grateful for all the things you do for us. But Phil forgot to give me a list when he went out sick this week. So... Uh, thank all of you patrons. We're really grateful for each and every one of you individually. But this week, though, I thought it would be really interesting since I had full reign of the show myself to bring on somebody I've wanted to talk to for a long time because I've listened to all the other episodes he's been on and his own podcast, but I've always been mysteriously absent whenever he shows up. So today we're going to be talking about one of the most important parts of EDH that people always forget to talk about, the finance my guest today is one of the most respected writers in the community when it comes to money, and we've brought him on today to help us walk through the most important things to consider financially, especially given that there's a new Commander product coming out within the next few weeks. On top of that, there's also rotation with the Kaladesh and Amonkhet blocks leaving, which is a great time for folks like us who don't care about Standard to start picking up some of those staples. Host of the popular Brainstorm Brewery and Money Draft podcast, I am glad to welcome returning guest Jason Alt to the show. Hey, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Interesting. So I guess Phil is the reason I haven't been back on then. He wanted to join us, but he caught the swine flu from a chicken that he was catching the chicken flu from. So unfortunately, uh, he's going to be in a farm somewhere. But in the meantime, I'm here to bring the entirety of the podcast and see how long I can float before I sink. That's a a lot of pressure you're putting on yourself. Uh, It's a good time. I love this. Normally, you would want like a professional podcaster to come on with you, but you brought me on instead. (laughs) (laughs) i'm the least professional podcaster yeah seriously i actually went back and i looked through our archives and i realized that short of any watsi employee you're the most frequent guest we have 
Like you've been on like six or seven of them, which is pretty impressive. Well, I think that's just because I came on like twice, but they were three-parters because I talk so much. <laughs> oh God, if it's, then it's just you and me, then we're going to be here for the next 12 hours. It'll be awesome. Yeah, that's a lot of value. But uh, for the listeners who haven't actually been with us for the past 140 some odd episodes, uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Where to begin? If you're looking for Wayback Archives, uh, my first contribution to content creation was writing for quietspeculation.com. You can probably find some old articles archived there. I write for the current Cool Stuff Inc., which was and still is, I guess, Gathering Magic. I write uh, the 75% EDH column. So if you... Uh, if you hear people talk about 75% EDH, that's a thing I made up. If you ask somebody at your LGS what that is, whatever they're telling you is wrong. Just go read what I wrote. <laughs> uh, I write for MTG Price, uh, which is a great finance website, and my articles are free at the end of the week. Uh, I'm the content manager for the EDH Rec website, so I, I wrangle all the writers, and uh, I launched the podcast there, and I'm in charge of all kind of stuff like merch, and it's a real job, so that's been good. Yeah, EDH Rec is like the most important resource we have. It's basically like permanently open in one of my tabs all the time. I was a real big advocate to the point where Donald actually approached me the same time I was approaching him about articles. Hmm. It was just sort of like... Uh, I messaged him. He's sort of like, I was going to message you about this. So that was that was just sort of I was such a big proponent of the site as a, a resource. So like every time I would write an article, he'd get a ping back and he'd be like, this guy's talking about me a lot. So that's how we we met. And then we're just sort of like, well, I I launched all the content on brainstormbrewery.com, which used to have articles. We used to like use Patreon money to pay writers. And that was cool for a while. We didn't really monetize the traffic at all. So it was just like a huge money sink. And then we're like, why are we throwing so much money at this? So we stopped doing that. But that was fun for a while. We launched a couple of good careers. Uh, Jim Casali, who writes for Cool Stuff, Inc., got started on Brainstorm Brewery. Douglas Johnson got started on Brainstorm Brewery. Yeah. A couple other people. I brought uh, Andy Hall with me to uh, to EDH Rec. So, yeah, it's 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 been fun. So, yeah, I do the content on EDH Rec. And uh, I'm on the Brainstorm Brewery and Money Draft podcast, like you said. Brainstorm Brewery is an MTG Finance podcast. But it's sort of like, hey, how do I make this game affordable sort of a deal? Yeah, that's why I like Brainstorm Brewery so much because it's less about like trying to maximize your edges or whatever and more about, hey, guys, if you actually want to get the cards you need, this is probably a good time for you to start picking them up before people who want to make a ton of money off of this do. Like I use Brainstorm Brewery as more like the canary in the coal mine. Like, oh, I really need to go and start looking at these cards or it's going to be gone in like 10 seconds. I think for most of your listeners, the, the one bit of advice that I could give you is just just double your orders. Like when you're buying <laughs> stuff for your decks, like you're, you have a pretty good judge of what you need for the decks you're building. And if you need that stuff, chances are other people are going to. So instead of buying one or two anointed processions, maybe buy two or four, mm. you know, and if you had before that card hit 12, you would have been real glad. So I think uh, I think with C18 coming out, this might be the first time where I'm not telling people, hey, just go buy all the decks. I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards buying singles. And uh, oh, really? With that in mind, you might want to double up your single order or quadruple up your single order if you can afford it, because um, some of the stuff I think uh, could be pretty good long term. Yeah, like I feel like the last three years worth of pre-cons have been fantastic, in my opinion. But this one... It feels like a miss almost, which is super weird because of it's like the same team behind them. But except for like the enchantments deck, I feel like the other ones are kind of, well, the artifacts deck too. But that's that feels almost just autopilot, right? It's like half of a Brea deck. 
the other two decks are just complete misses for me. If they're going to raise MSRP by five bucks, they could have seriously included 15 or $20 more in pre-reprint prices. You could have put another Worm Coil tier card. You could have put two Enchantress's Presence tier cards on top of like the one Worm Coil tier card you can already put in. Because what we saw with the Doretti deck... That didn't really... The white one was the one people were buying the most mm. because they wanted Containment Priest. Yes. So, like, that Worm Coil came, went down six bucks, went right back up, you know? Yeah, exactly. Doretti is the second most popular uh, commander um, on EDH rack. Just period? Uh, of the five. Yeah, that makes sense. Of, of the five, it's the second most popular. Teferi is the most popular just because it's the tryhard. Oh, look, man, chain bailing. <laughs> but, like, they could have put a Worm Coil in for $35 MSRP. And if you're going to raise the MSRP to 40 you could have put a second Worm Coil. I think I, that's a little ballsy for them but i think based on what the prices do um what they're trying to do is they're hoping they have a bunch of ten dollar new cards and maybe one or two twenty dollar new cards they're hoping everything's a blade of selves but not everything's a blade of selves or a, a stone hoof chieftain a lot of your stuff is gonna be a i don't know name a bulk rare <laughs> that's six mana thing that makes tokens that go away at the end of combat yeah i can't even think of the name of bad cards <laughs> that's the thing it's like i look at i look at the set and i was just really surprised that worm coil wasn't there because worm coil just felt like it would be like a free include in the in the sahili deck like of course you're going to put one really good card because both is it's both a like a necessary reprint that everybody wants it's also a really great card to teach people the value of like you know if you want to use these intro decks as a teaching tool it would be amazing to use like worm coil engine to say like look you could do all these sahili tricks and then the new player feels cool that they're doing awesome things. The veteran player is like, great, I got another worm coil. I can use it in other decks. Everybody comes away happy. I felt that Gavin's explanation that, oh, you know, we want people to have a step up from this deck. We want them to be able to expand the deck afterwards and have some place to grow. That's a, that's a good sentiment. But if you don't have worm coils out there or the worm coil equivalent out there in the marketplace, A, the new fan who's got his deck isn't going to know that there's a worm coil they need to get. And B, there's not going to be a worm coil for them to get in the first place because they're all gone. That's that's spin because people are, they have to modify the decks anyway because the decks are pulling in three different directions always. By virtue of having three different commanders that sort of synergize a little bit, mm. like, hey, maybe you don't want to take Brutoclad out of your Sahili deck, but... If you're building along the lines of Brutoclad, there's 30 cards you're going to pull out of that deck that might not go in the Sahili deck per se. Right. So it, you're going to pick a commander and then you're going to take, if you're building Sahili, you're going to take Varchild out of the deck. It just doesn't doesn't go in the Sahili deck. It doesn't do anything at all. Yeah, once you take all the Varchildy cards out that are just good with Brutoclad, even if you leave Brutoclad in, some of the, the tokeny stuff that doesn't really synergize with Sahili that well comes out and you're modifying the deck anyway yeah you can play the pre-con out of the package but for the most part even if people are leaving too many cards in just because they're just good enough which you know we have taken to calling the pre-con effect at edh rec when you leave a card in the deck that you wouldn't have put in if you build up from zero cards when you're cutting down from 100 mm. like some some cards that are in the pre-con get overplayed just by virtue of having been printed in that same stack of cards sure that's a thing but even even still you're gonna take so much stuff out that you're gonna you're going to modify the pre-con no matter what. So it's really just like we didn't have a sense of how to make this worth another $5 MSRP. It's so funny. It's like 
when I first when I first saw these decks, I was kind of excited for them because there's a lot of really good pieces in there. I love the enchantment deck, for instance. And then I realized that it's five dollars more, and I was like, wait, why? There's not five dollars more worth of content here. And then I realized why everybody was getting so unhappy about the reprints and lack thereof. First off, the Jun deck is a complete miss, right? Like it could have been a perfect place to put your escape shifts and like your crucibles and everything like that, but there's no point in that deck. Those cards would do nothing in a lands deck or the theoretic lands deck that they gave us there. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff could have gone in there, even if it wasn't in something as expensive as, as Crucible was before it got reprinted. Maybe not something as expensive as Life from the Loam. I think they could have done a little bit better than their best card being like Avengers Endicar. You know, like... Uh, yeah, which had been reprinted as early as a dual deck, right? I mean... that It doesn't matter. You can't... I don't think you can print Avenger or Zendikar enough times to permanently depress its price. It's it's one of my favorite cards, so I'm, like, never going to sell it. But at least that was nice to see. But I think they're hoping Windgrace's Judgment ends up 15. They don't acknowledge the secondary market. They know that there's a secondary market, right? Like, they know that people buy and sell the cards. And they even know what the values are worth because they can look them up. But what they can't do is acknowledge that they're doing anything with prices in mind. So what they do is like, we want to increase card availability. And when you reprint something like Warm Coil Engine and the price goes down $5 and goes back up, that's all they accomplished was getting more copies of Warm Coil out there. Like anytime you did Tarmogoyf in a master set and the price didn't go down and everyone was mad, I'm like, why? Why are you mad? You had a chance to open Tarmogoyf in a booster and people who already had Tarmogoyfs didn't eat a $25 slap in the face by the <laughs> the price of their card being depressed. They actually accidentally did what they wanted Chronicles to do. They did it correctly. It worked fine for Too the well. big the big stuff that was worth, you know, a hundred plus dollars. And then the stuff that was, you know, thirty went to like twelve and then people could afford it. That was perfect. So yeah. when they say card availability, it sounds like spin, but actually that's uh, consideration they do want the cards more available they want more worm coils out there and even if the price goes back up that means if you bought the pre-con you just got an extra seven dollars in value it appreciated just by sure. you sitting on it so that it's it's a win-win so the fact that they didn't really try hard in any of these decks except for the enchantment one and they gave us Enchantress's presence, which if you look at EDH rack, it's in fewer than 3,000 decks, and a lot of its price was predicated on the fact that it's a four of in the Legacy Enchantress deck mm -hmm. and scarcity. I think you're absolutely right, because I remember when like Tarmogoyf came out, I cracked a foil one and I managed to trade it so that I could get a, a Crucible of Worlds back when they were like $100 or whatever. I think you hit it on the head there that it's not necessarily the high-ticket items that you're worried about the price changing on as much as the kind of mid-tier mid stuff that really shouldn't be $10 a pop, $12 a pop, dropping down to $5, $6 being much more available the way like Serum Visions or something did when they reprinted it, right? Like that card had no business being so expensive. And when it dropped in price, because they just kind of threw it in there into like one of the supplement sets or whatever, it made it a lot easier for everybody to just kind of pick up. And that's what they're about. They they can't really say, hey, we wanted to bring the price down, but they can say, hey, we brought the supply up. And mm. this does that. But I just wish this had brought the supply up. I could name, there's so many cards that could have gone in all of these decks and like would have helped justify the extra five bucks MSRP. And if you balance it across the four decks, there's not a run on one of the decks like there was on the uh, 
the Mind Seas one that had the uh, True Name Nemesis in it. Exactly. That was the only one anybody bought, and the other one sat on shelves. Which was great for the rest of us who wanted to buy just pre-cons, because then you're like, oh, look, they're all just sitting here. We can buy them cheap. But the True Name Nemesis one was obviously like $9 billion. And that was also the deck that Fluster Storm in it, wasn't it? No. Or was that from like the first set? That was from the first one. That was the um, uh, uh, Jeskai one. Right, right. So given that we do have all these cards that didn't get reprinted, what would you suggest to somebody who was going to go pick up one of these decks or who wanted to build something off of one of these themes that they should get before the price spikes too high? Well, it's, uh, it's a little too late for some of the stuff because when you have these real obvious themes, mm. if it's obvious... You know, that means the price is going to go up because uh, enough people are going to be like, oh, that's obvious to me. And they're going to people bought cat stuff when they spoiled the cat deck that yeah. it wasn't even good. It didn't synergize with any of the, the, the commanders. They're just like, oh, waiting in the weeds. That makes cats a slam dunk. They bought stupid cards just not knowing. <laughs> I think people were like, hey, I saw an alpha investments. So you just buy stuff on the reserve list. So people just... They got their Academy Rectors and their Replenishes and their, you know, that stuff moved in a way that in past years when the um, uh, the Daxos deck came out and I told people to buy Sarah Sanctums at $30, everyone was like, yeah, I'll pass. Oh, man, I wish I had done that. But now oh, it's on the reserve list. It's got it's going to go up and it's not going to go down because everybody took all their Bitcoin money when that crashed and they invested in something safer. Yeah, I ended up, I bought a Sarah, uh, I bought a Sarah Sanctum like a few weeks ago. It's because a friend of mine was selling it and I really wanted it anyways. I've been meaning to get it forever, but I feel dumb that I didn't pick it up when nobody cared. Well, what are the odds that you're going to care when nobody cares? Like if you're building around these pre-cons, I built my Bant Chantress deck in Vegas last year just because I wanted to. I wanted to build around Rubinia Soulsinger and use, uh, the Enchantress cards to draw cards when I played Mind uh, mind Control and Treachery and stuff like that. So I steal their creatures and then keep my hand full. And uh, that was a year ago, and Enchantress's presence was cheaper than it got, but then it's cheaper now than I paid. But, like, that's before Treachery went up, and it was before, you know, Replenish went up, and I just got all that stuff for cheap. Oh, God, Replenish is, like, 70 or $80 now. It's so dumb. Well, I mean, it's it's on the reserve list. I mean, I get it, but it's still just frustrating. And, and well, people thought that they were going to print a Replenish-esque card, and they kind of did. They gave Estrid the ability. Yeah. Estrid's Replenish is actually really insane. But the, a lot of the, the obvious stuff spiked. But I think the non-obvious stuff that like people that don't think they're being smart aren't going to uh, notice is, is going to show up on EDH Rec in the next couple of weeks. So when people actually build the deck... They'll be like, man, Helm of the Host is really good in Brutaclad. You know what else is good? Go to Bandit Warlord. <laughs> oh, man. I'm using Helm of the Host in my Brutaclad deck to copy Martin Stromgold. What? Martin Stromgold? I haven't thought of that name in like 400 years. Because it, it doesn't stack. It's just when he attacks, uh, all your creatures get plus star, plus star, where star is a number of attacking creatures. But if every single one of your tokens is a copy of Martin Stromgold, you just worm, or you crater huff everybody. Holy crap. I think I might even still have my original one sitting around. Yeah, and uh, Helm of the Host makes a, a non-legendary uh, token. Oh, that's dumb. I love it. <laughs> you're not going to like you're not going to get a replenish at this point, but you're going to look into some Brutaclad shenanigans or how are people building their Zancha deck? 
You know, what are people doing with the fact that they paid $17 for Eureka and want to justify it, but there are only nine ninjas in all of Magic the Gathering unless you <laughs> count the unstable ones. So what do you do? Seriously, Eureka is going to be a tricky deck. I mean, obviously they made it to work with Tetsuko from Dominaria, but even there, it's like, what are you going to need to use that? Like all those cards that change your tribe to be whatever tribe you want. Yeah. So that all your dinosaurs can suddenly be ninjas or something, but it's going to be really silly. And tribal stuff will always be good. (laughs) It was, it's too late. Like for a lot of the stuff, six weeks after they announce what the four decks are, you're not going to, you're not going to find stuff cheap. So you got to think about how you would actually build. So that's that's what I tell people to just build the deck. How would you build the deck? Like, how would you build that stupid Jun deck? Because nothing <laughs> spiked on the basis of that. Everyone's like, Jun lands, uh, maybe life on the loan. Nothing went up because nobody knew what to do because it wasn't as obvious as Enchantress. It was like, Jun lands, what does that even mean? Exactly. So nothing's really gone up. And nothing's gone down because they didn't really reprint anything that mattered. So basically, what do you want to build around? Do you want to build a Gyrus deck? Yeah, with the Jun, with the Jun deck, I've been because uh, I was actually like excited for it, so I was brainstorming how to do it. And it's like, oh, you can use Gitrog and Titania and Omnath and all of these things together and do these weird just like lands up and down shenanigans. Everybody was looking like, oh, the deck has nothing in it, but it has Wind Grace, and Wind Grace is pretty good about getting lands into and out of the yard. I think you could do some pretty silly things with that, especially if you got like landfall triggers and all this. So it's not an obvious deck to build, which I find refreshing for once, because some of these pre-cons are kind of just on rails. You're like, oh, okay, I'm going to build Sahili deck. I know exactly what your Sahili deck is going to look like. It's going to look like a Brea deck minus black and white. And, you know, you look at like the Banchantress, you know what a Banchantress deck looks like. Nobody knows what a Windgrace deck looks like, because that's just going to be, you're going to just have to start digging into the like bins and looking for weird cards, because I think there's a lot of like opportunity and promise there. But then you look at the other legends that they put in that Jun deck and they're just complete trash. Like the spider is just like kind of okay. You know, Please attack me. If you get attacked, it gets bigger. Fine, I guess. It causes chaos. But the, the Hydra? The Hydra just does not seem like a playable card. I'm more lukewarm on these decks than I was before. But I think that there's still some hope to be found there. I think at least you're not going to be able to build a Banchantress deck for cheap anymore. That's just not going to happen. But if you want to pull out all your old bulk Theros enchantments, this is a good time to start, I guess, rebuilding those fun decks. Because I think that there's a lot of lower tier shenanigans to be had with this. We'll play open the vaults if you can't afford 70 bucks for replenish. You'll still get the same number of triggers on your, your stupid Colossus and you'll make your creature a 512-512 and swing at somebody and laugh. <laughs> you got a couple different ways to build. You could build an Eryxmethes deck. You could build around Kesh. You could build around Tuvasa. Like. Well, I'm built, I've am built. i built an Eryxmethes deck that was just waiting for a commander to come out. And Eryxmethes is exactly the one. It's basically blue-green ramp into giant monsters kind of like Kiora deck and Eryxmethes is exactly the type of like nonsense that I want leading that deck because it's so perfect it's a ramp card that eventually turns into a giant eventually no you crop rotation for a thespian stage yeah I was actually thinking about that I was trying to think if thespian stage works with Eryxmethes the way that I want it to and I didn't know if it did or not. I asked judges on Twitter. I know that like Dark Depths, when it goes away, it says like when it discards, you get Merit Lage. This one, when the counters go away, like you don't get a token. It just becomes a card. Like how would Thespian Stage work? It says as long as Eryxmethes has a slumber counter on it, it's a land. So when you play Thespian Stage, you get a copy of Eryxmethes that has zero slumber counters on it. Oh, and then it just turns into the 12-12 automatically? Yeah. Oh, 
because Eryxmethes is a land when it has slumber counters on it. So you make a copy of it with Thespian Stage, and that makes a copy of Eryxmethes with no slumber counters on it. Right. So it's a 12-12. That's awesome. Yep. That's definitely going into the deck now. Yeah, no, I was super excited for Eryxmethes. I think he's awesome. I think that's going to be a really fun deck to build. I'm excited for Tuvasa. She's the one that I'm actually building around. Like I built this half-built Rafik deck before I realized everybody hates Rafik. And so I'm using that and instead turning it into like an Auras-based deck. And that's going to be fun. It's going to get like blown out of the water super easy, but that's okay. I'm not too worried about getting wrecked in EDH. Rafik is the poster child for kill on site. Yeah, I know. That's why he's not going to be the commander anymore. <laughs> it's like, shove him into the deck. I kind of like uh, Tuvasa, but like, I kind of think Heavenly Blade Master. I don't know how to feel about that card. It's the uh, the three six angel with flying and double strike. And when it enters the battlefield, you can attach any number of auras and equipment you control to it. And then other creatures you control get plus one plus one for each all right. aura and equipment attached to it. So you're playing a SRAM deck and just getting all that value, just SRAM jamming. And you play Blade Master and all your two twos suddenly turn into beasts and you can KO somebody with just the Blade Master. Right. And then think about it, you stick your lightning greaves on it, give it haste, and hey, everybody's getting a plus one plus one off of that too. It just seems super fun. If you've got the Heavenly Blade Master and then you've got the Odric that they put in uh, Shadows over Innistrad that gives all of your guys all the keywords, then you can just get stupid really quickly. So there there are fun cards in these decks. So the next big topic I wanted to talk to you about is the other season we're coming up on, which is the first real rotation we've had in quite some time with four major sets finally leaving. Uh, with Kaladesh, Amakep block finally going to be leaving standard, much to the joy of, I guess, all the people who play professionally but who aren't me. That means that the market is going to get flooded with all these people turning in old cards that are no longer useful, right? Uh, ideally, right? Do you have any advice kind of for the listeners in terms of how to approach rotation, what maybe to keep in mind what sorts of things they should be looking at picking up? Well, at rotation, uh, for the most part, People who play standard buy a lot of cards for standard. They'll buy booster boxes, you know, hoping to crack stuff in packs. And they've got these trade binders. And a lot of times at rotation, they'll just be like, nah, I'll just dump all this stuff. And they're like, oh, all these are bulk rares at rotation now. Uh, I'm never going to use Aetherflux Reservoir. You know, I'm never going to use Dovin Bond or Angel of Invention. So a lot of the stuff just gets dumped. The price goes down because the market's flooded. But if you're patient, some of the stuff rebounds pretty quickly. Like some of the stuff is just established in multiple formats or people are aware it's an EDH staple. So it's like, I don't think you're going to pick up $2 copies of Anointed Procession. Yeah. You know, but I, I think uh, your lands, your Blooming Marsh or your Botanical Sanctum could go down a little bit. Your Panharmonicon, you know, the stuff like that. That's basically just an EDH card. I, I would pick that stuff up. And for the most part, you're in good shape as an EDH player already. Because standard players don't really care about what most of their cards are worth. They they know about the stuff they want for standard. But everything else, they, they don't really, they're like, whatever. They might look <laughs> it up on their app and make the trade take forever. But for the most part, they're just happy to get rid of this, this junk. Because they'll never use it. So trading at rotation is a good thing to do, too. When people care the least about that EDH stuff. Right. They're like, oh, it's a buck now, whatever. And then you're picking up a fistful of noxious gear hulk or you know yeah like all the stuff that they weren't going to use in their in their decks anyways it's not in my hazard deck i don't give a crap here you go and then you walk away with all of your like you know paradox engines or whatever i think like especially with like the dual lands and stuff this is definitely a good time because a lot of these things are gonna 
I mean, they're modern staples, right? Like the Fastlands. So they're not going to drop a ton, but they're going to drop a little bit. And they're definitely not going to drop more than that. I would probably go and pick those up, especially like, and the cycling lands, they're probably going to hit like the lowest they're ever going to get to, right? Like nobody wants those uh, cycling duels from Amoket except us. Yeah, I mean, once they're, once they're not in standard, sure. Um, every once in a while, a set will come out that it, in hindsight, you're like, man, every card from that set is just gas. Like at the time, everyone thought Saviors of Kamigawa was like the worst set ever. And now look at it. How many ten dollar <laughs> cards are in Saviors? So some of these, uh, some of these blocks don't seem all that remarkable for standard. But when you look at how they work synergistically with each other and like how they all fit into with other blocks, anything that's an artifact heavy block is just always going to have a ton of gas in it later on. So exactly. you're going to look back at Kaladesh in like three years and you'd be like whoa when did all these cards hit five bucks there's just <laughs> going to be a, a a ton of stuff from from kaladesh block and you're like what when did inventors fair hit five bucks why is aetherflux why is it four or six well it's a four of in a deck in modern plus it's an edh thing man inventors fair that's a card that i would definitely be like just snapping up because it's so like it's so useful in all of my artifact decks and everybody's always going to have artifact decks you guys already know what's good that's a card that i don't think you're going to see anywhere but edh going forward no probably not and i don't know i think it would be worth your time to pick up but as a player you already know what's good you already know what you want that's true so if you see like sub one dollar copies of something like uh life crafters bestiary or rishgar's is rishgar the green guy rishgar's expertise yeah. stuff like that you know, foil SRAM, scrap trawler, exquisite archangel. Man, I opened like five boxes of Kaladesh block and I didn't get a single Lifecrafter's Bestiary. It is so frustrating to me because that's like the one card I need. So I'm just need to go out and actually buy a single. And I'm like, don't ever open packs, people. No, don't open packs if you're buying less than a case. Fair. And if you if you don't want to commit to a case, then just go buy singles. It's seriously like you will get the exact card you're looking for for the cost of that pack or less. Instead of like sitting there and just like, oh, I'm buying seven packs to get this one card. What card is it? It's an uncommon. It's like, that's a quarter, dude. You could just go and buy it for a quarter. It's like, but I needed to open it. No, no, you really didn't. That's why people need the secondary market. If it weren't for the secondary market, you would be buying booster packs trying to get uncommons. <laughs> let us open the packs. Let us sort all the cards. Let us list it on a... a a website and let us pay ourselves three dollars an hour for our time to send you the card <laughs> right to your house just make a few mouse clicks and just pay us save your money edh cards are so expensive already don't just throw it away on nothing but the thing i'm interested in personally because i love shiny cards and stuff do you think things like inventions or anything like that would drop in price at the rotation no because they're they're not even it's not even the same classification of card. Mm, they're not that's fair. they're not magic cards. You know they're what do you mean? they're placeholders for magic cards. You know they're, I'm allowed to have this instead of a soul ring. It's a masterpiece. It's ah. shiny. It, it's always what it is. It's just going to go up in price over time. I'm just trying to make myself feel better before I go and drop another large grip of money trying to finish out my mono copper deck. Yeah, finance, I'm just so bad at it because I'm like, oh, I want to build a deck. But when I come up with the idea to build a deck, everybody else has come up with that same idea. And all the cards I'm looking at are like, oh, million dollars now. 
it's one of the things like the the commander releases are really good for giving people themes and rails to follow in terms of what decks to build but they're bad because everybody then wants to build those same decks and the cards that are make those decks really good jump in price because that's just basic economics so unless you're like some kind of you know sage who can see into the future and tell like next year there's going to be a deck based around i don't know uh oofs and then you go and buy your brown oofy from like the dark or whatever I don't know. Every time I talk to like Gavin and stuff, I'm like, please reprint more cards from the dark or from the olden days that are not on the reserve list that nobody cares about, but would be really great for EDH, like Gaia's Touch, which would be such an easy reprint. It's a bad burgeoning, but it's another burgeoning, kind of. It is. It lets you have another land drop. I love it. I would rather they work hard on making more treasure nabbers. Failing, giving us a couple of worm coils in every deck, worm coil tier cards, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. something that's like 20 bucks, going to go down five, go back up. Just a solid reprint that you want more copies of. Barring that, at least put more than one treasure napper tier card in every deck. And they didn't really do that. That card actually looks really cool. Every deck's got one that's pretty good. You know, the um, the Aminatu deck has two. What's good in there? Well, Yenit is uh, is money and um, yeah, Eureka is money. Yes, that makes sense. And everyone's like, why didn't they put Sensei's Divining Top in the deck? Uh, no. That that's doesn't a... make any sense to me. I asked him straight up. I'm like, why wouldn't you put Top into a because deck? Because it's a literally... beginner tier card and Top is the most annoying card in Magic to play against. I mean, yes, but it's also <laughs> you made a deck that is literally top of the deck manipulation. If you were ever going to reprint top, that's a place to reprint it. Now, I get not reprinting something like Cyclonic Rift or something like Ristic Study or whatever. Fine, I get that. I don't get I don't get not reprinting Ristic Study. I really wish they had. I really wish they had. Top's unreasonable. That that's It's so annoying to play against. They're not going to put top in a pre-con for new players. Yeah, I know. Top is like a miserable card. Same with like, you know, Cyclonic Rift. But they have to put them somewhere. Like these things need to come back. This is getting absurd. Well, I mean, who knows what they've got planned for master sets? Who knows what they've got planned for the FTV yeah. stuff? Well, what are they doing? The spell books now? Yeah, the spell books are coming up. So like that's the new FTV. So like who knows what's going to go in there? Fair. So I don't know what they've got planned for the next two years. But I, I'm with everybody else that they definitely should have done more because every card that's like a buck or less is never going to go back up in price. High Priest of Penance is a bulk rare forever now. Hmm. So like you can say you can count that as a buck in your calculation. Say this deck worth uh, 250 bucks, but it's a dime. Yeah. To me, it's a dime, you know, because that's what I can sell it for. Fair. So if Geode Golem doesn't hold up its its weight, I think uh, I, I think... Aminatu is the most expensive deck now, and I think it could be the cheapest. But that relies on Whiptong Hydra or Crash of Rhino Beetles or Windgrace's Judgment or something to to go up. It's it's hard to tell where the, the values can end up, but it's got to go somewhere. And I, I don't think that Xantia can maintain its value. Yeah, Xantia is a very narrow card. I think like the people who really want it are going to get it. But I don't know that that's going to become one of those like all-purpose commanders that everybody wants to have. It's a weird year for commander decks. It's it's hard to know what's going to happen just because you look at past years, but hey, the decks were better and people were more excited to buy them. And the Atraxa deck meant people were buying copies of every deck. They were flying off the shelves. I think this is a little bit more similar to the last time we had Planeswalker commanders and they sold real unevenly. Yeah. If you look at EDH rec data, you got Teferi and like 700 decks as the commander, 500 for uh, Nahiri, 
1245 for Duretti. I said it was the second most. It's actually the most. Uh, Obnixilis was like 248 and Freilis was like 600. So they were real spread out and how they're getting built around. But like if you look at the, the other commanders, people were building around like building elf decks with the cards from Freilis and stuff like that. It was a little bit more even. It's funny. I, I took the Freilis deck. I turned it into a Titania deck and I took all the elf cards out. Because it was just like, who cares? I need trees, man. I don't need elves. But that deck was, I think, the most like easily split in half deck I've ever seen them build. Where two sides were so completely unrelated, Fraley's and Titania. Like most of the other decks, they're at least a little bit more intertwined or like the side generals are completely like useless in the main deck. Oh, it was something like Tygam in the Dragon's deck where you're like, why was this even in here? Right, exactly. Don't get me wrong. I love Tygam. Yeah, but it just felt so out of place there. I don't know. I think last year's like tribal decks with vampires, cats, and dragons really just kind of killed it. This year, I'm picking up my playset just because I don't want to deal with it later, but I don't know that I would tell people right off to just go buy all four. Well, my LGS sold me all four for like a reasonable price and I want to support the LGS. So that's exactly what I do. Like I go to my LGS, I buy like the pre-cons there every time. It keeps them happy. It keeps me happy. And we have a good relationship. If you're on a budget, maybe pick up one deck and then go buy the like the commander you want later because I don't even know if these decks played that well. They don't look like it on the surface. They 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 seem like they play well against each other. They seem playing against somebody else with the with a commander 2018 deck, it'll be a, a fair game. They seem scale well to each other, but they don't seem like they scale well against past years or what your average person even on a budget is going to be right. sleeving up at the table. So, it's it, it's hard to know. I mean, I guess we'll find out in a few weeks when when the decks actually come out or I guess in a few days, even when the decks actually come out, I don't know. It's, it's kind of disheartening because the last few years have been so good that I guess I just wanted more. Well, we, well, when we heard we were getting charged more, we obviously thought we were going to get more. So they raised our yeah. expectations by virtue of being like, Oh, don't worry. The MSRP is going up, but it'll be worth it. <sighs> we took them at their word. And then they gave us like the log line for the decks like this is gonna be a lands matter deck and then it's like this is not a lands matter deck this is a something deck this is a jun deck with some random cards in it and Windgrace, who's got like the worst ultimate i've seen since tybalt but you know, what are you gonna do i'm excited for saheli at least i think that'll play fun out of the box and i'm super excited to build a brutaclad deck because <laughs> that guy looks stupid i'm replacing rubini with estrid straight up because estrid actually scales better with the way i built the deck already where I was already running overgrowth and stuff like that. Yeah, Estrid looks awesome. I am really excited. Totem Armor is like one of my favorite mechanics in all of Magic, so I'm really just stoked to see that one come back. And you can go infinite with the Chain Veil with Estrid? Man, I made a mistake, and I sold my Chain Veil for like, I don't know what it I sold it for something like just like absurdly low just because, I don't know, I didn't need it, or I wanted to buy like trade it for a pack of cards or something, and I just feel so dumb having now done that. Like, Chain Veil is a card that needs a reprint, and I don't know why they... I mean, I know why they won't, but I think they should. It just feels like, oh, it's a story card. We can't reprint it. It's also, you know, high value. People want to keep buying it. We want people to go to the stores and learn what these cards do, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, but please give me chain veils because they cost way too much. They were five, six bucks before they announced Planeswalker Commanders. Right, before the Planeswalkers could suddenly become like your uh, commander. And now everybody wants chain veil. 
and like everybody's super friends deck and Estrid going infinite with Chainveil is just so dumb. That's gonna be, I mean, I think that'll be fun to do like once. People bought Chainveil because it's obvious. They heard Planeswalkers and they just stopped thinking. Basically. So anything that's super obvious, like more people are going to buy in thinking they're geniuses mm. and whether they're right or not, they're going to move prices more profoundly than anybody actually buying surgically with the correct information. So I, th- I feel Fair. like if you wait around, you're guaranteed more money but it's it's harder and you don't get those big sexy hits when you buy five dollar chain veils and then sell them for 20 (laughs) but i feel like if you wait for the same information everyone else has got your orders get canceled that's the truth you never know who's gonna actually send them for five bucks so i don't wait anymore i buy two months ahead of everybody when i can and i kind of feel like the stuff that's going to go up based on a brutaclad deck versus going up based on the fact that you know that lands matter or you know that there are enchantments. I think that's the stuff mm. where I'm going to make my money. I didn't I didn't buy a bunch of replenishes when they announced that there was going to be an enchantress deck because my orders are going to get canceled. I just knew the stuff wouldn't come to me. So I don't like to buy on the same information everybody else has. I like to do some EDH rec data analysis and really mine you know, what people are actually playing. And I, I kind of think those prices go up more organically. And... Mm. Um, and you, you'll make money that way. So if you're not inclined to make money, what you can do is just look at that data and buy the stuff that everyone's going to want before they want it. And then you'll pay less. And then when you want to get rid of it later, it'll be worth more. So if you bought two copies, your copy was free when the price doubles and you t- you know trade your second copy for the double value. That means you got a free copy. If, if that's all you're into, just building decks, that's a great way to get free cards is to just buy <laughs> two of them before they double and just trade one out. I feel like that's such a fundamentally good tip to have just in terms of, I mean, I think you're exactly right. Like, you know which cards are good for this deck. You know what cards are good for this type of deck. If you're going to get one, chances are somebody else wants to get one. You might as well get two and then give them that one and then get your benefit out of it. That's like such an obvious idea that I I feel like not enough of us have internalized i think that's because people feel bad because they see sarah sanctum went to 170 they're like speculators are rude in magic and they don't think like a speculator (laughs) they don't think hey what mtg finance is really about for most people is playing the game for cheap and i got a lot of tips for that that's most of what i do most of what I do is buying cards for the buy list price and selling it for the retail price. And then there's money built into that model for me to to be compensated for it. People don't have to crack packs to get on commons. Everybody's happy. They get the exact card they wanted. I'll go and trade at the LGS to pick up what they want from me. I'll do all the work. Just pay me. That's most of what <laughs> I do. Maybe 5% of what I do is speculation. Because people are like, ah, I hit on my spec and now I don't know how to sell it. So like, I think a lot of people think they're doing it but then when you add up all their hits and misses they broke even because they sure they bought replenish but they also bought waiting in the weeds so <laughs> i think if if there are a lot of people out there writing mtg finance articles that are just trying to save you money they're just trying to tell you to buy it now before it doubles i'm not saying hey yeah let's all get together in our shadowy finance cabal and make these prices go up because we're evil (laughs) not all of us well i mean i feel like that doesn't do you any favors either because yeah like nobody if nobody buys your cards and you're stuck with it too it doesn't matter if the price is now doubled if you can't sell the thing i sold like i sold 30 gayest cradles when they were 30 
and I've sold one now that they're three fifty. I've sold one in the past two years. So I don't even know when they were thirty. They've always been expensive to me. <laughs> so what are you gonna do? Um, I think uh, a lot of people are giving people good advice on how to make the game playable, and uh, I think a lot of people have a real antagonistic attitude toward MTG Finance just because of a fundamental misunderstanding of what we're about and how a few bad actors are with the you know the biggest YouTube channels are acting. But I think for the most part, a lot of us just want you to pay $3 for the card that'll be 7 next week and have you thank us. <laughs> to be honest, I think a lot of it is just that it's not even that speculators or something that are driving up these prices. It's the fact that there's just a lot of magic players now. Yep. There's a whole lot of magic players and not a lot of these old cards that everybody wants to have. So the price is just going to go up. It is not necessarily that there's a cabal trying to like, I mean, okay, sometimes you will see runs on weird reserve list cards that really shouldn't be like $30 or whatever they are for that alpha uncommon. But a lot of the times I think it's just literally just supply and demand. There's just, a, you know, magnitudes, more magic players, and they're all listening to podcasts they're all buying these pre-cons they all want to try to play the game and they all want to go and get their sarah sanctum to do the cool thing that they think they can do yep it's just people seeing stuff demonstrated too yeah you watch a stream you see somebody do something awesome yeah game nights has spiked way more cards than brainstorm brewery ever did you know we could tell people till we're blue in the face buy a card that's not great you know trying to make <laughs> it go up and you know be scumbags but it just doesn't work but you see it on game nights and boom, there it goes. Or you see it on pro tour coverage and it's just, it's people, it's not speculators being like, oh, I got to buy all the copies of Militia Bugler. It's everyone running out and buying a playset so they can play that deck. So exactly. We get blamed for a lot of just excitement just because there are 12 million people or whatever playing Magic. There's two things here, right? Like one, there's uh, the game nights effect of like Shadowborn Apostles suddenly becoming $800 or whatever absurd cost it is after um, Josh played that amazing, super cool looking deck. And Phil, I know, wanted me to ask you, do you think that the Game Nights effect has real, a real tangible effect on the way prices go? One card every three episodes, sure. And I think that's just because seeing it get played is exciting. Game Nights is a cool thing. It's hmm. it's good. Game nights making prices go up is not bad because it's just demonstrating to people, hey, this is a cool thing that you could have been doing the whole time. And but it's just getting people who don't have much of an imagination all on the same board, I guess. This is a thing the whole time, and now you know about it. So I uh, I think um I think it's fine. I, I like uh game nights and if it makes a price go up every once in a while, that's not a big deal. I mean, I think it's it's one thing to think of a deck and another to see it being played. And when you see it being played, you're like, oh, it does work the way I think. Now I'm definitely going to go out and buy those cards. So yeah, I mean, that's going to happen. Or seeing somebody just get totally pantsed. Someone plays a repercussion and then, you know, cast a blasphemous act. And like thinking about <laughs> that combo on paper is one thing, but seeing it like pants a whole table is another thing. <laughs> Game Mice gets people excited to play Magic the Gathering. They see a play and they're like, yes, I want to make that play. I want to yeah. be like, it's it's fine. I'm, I, I think it's good what they're doing. And I think really what they're doing is getting people so excited about Magic the Gathering that they forget themselves temporarily and they just go spend a bunch of money on a deck they might not build. And that's fine. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I have definitely watched a couple of episodes of Game Nights and then literally gone out and bought the deck 
Good. I've got the pieces of building a ceram deck right here waiting for me to actually get around to putting it together. I'm certain I will someday because it was on a Game Nights episode and it looked amazing. And my Hepatra deck, which is like my favorite deck, I built based off of Josh's deck that he used in that one Game Night. And then I modified it with a bunch of things. But yeah, I mean, I am not immune to the Game Night effect. Not going to lie. If you're somebody that doesn't like that, you're like, yeah, I wish people would come up with their own stuff. Cool. Come up with your own stuff because the cards will be cheaper because nobody's fighting you for them. So <laughs> go be that guy. That's fine. That guy saves money. Let's end with one thing that's been recently bothering a lot of people that I got a lot of questions from my patrons about. What do you think about Nexus of Fate? Uh, I think it's fine. That's real <laughs> controversial. I thought it was fine at the time. People have been complaining about Nexus of Fate since it was called Fire Song and Sunspeaker. Yep. Um, this is this is going to be a real controversial opinion. I'm going to do my best to support my view on it, which is there is no data to suggest there are fewer copies of Nexus of Fate available when all the boxes of M19 that are going to get cracked are cracked. There is nothing to suggest there are fewer copies of Nexus of Fate than there are something like Nico Bolas. Um, Nexus of Fate was played as a four of in a deck that was doing things on camera at a PT and at its fever pitch, the maximum amount of people seeing Nexus of Fate and wishing they had Nexus of Fate and going out and buying it and spiking the price, Nexus's price never got above that of Foil Nico Bullis, a card that didn't get played on camera at all at the PT because it's a dumb EDH dragon. What Nexus of Fate does is it gives people incentive to go buy a box at their LGS. And what if Nexus of Fate hits 100? Then your box was free. Yep. Firesong and Sunspeaker's three bucks. Everyone's like, what if that's 100? Yeah, what if? I think there are a few people that have made a name for themselves on Twitter, whipping people up. And when they don't have a, res a card like this to complain about, they complain about the reserve list. And then they go back to complaining about card stock quality or whatever. I think it's just a few people that are getting people real worked up. People said this was it was dangerous to have a card that could be standard playable, only available at the store. But there are a lot of copies of Nexus of Fate out there, and it's... It's not as expensive as it could hit a hundred, but so did Jay's friend's prodigy. And there, everyone's like, well, you could get Jay's friend's prodigy in a, in a booster pack. Yeah. And you can get Nexus of fate by going into your LGS and buying a box. So I like, look, it's expensive to buy four boxes at the LGS. I get it. But people were selling Nexus for like five, six, seven bucks a while ago. It was at 15 for a while. I I think Nexus of Fate is probably the worst case scenario. They're going to dial back the power level and they'll never do anything for the buy a box promo as good as Nexus of Fate again. I mm -hmm. think they're going to very much steer into only being an EDH card. They probably should have had it be another legendary creature yeah. for sure. They should make sure it's only casual or brawl or something like that. They shouldn't do something that could get played in standard or modern or legacy or whatever. They should steer away from that. But Nexus of Fate is basically the worst case scenario that everybody was talking about back when they introduced Fire Song and Sunspeaker. And it's not that bad. It's still it's still more available and less money than a, a foil rare that's in the set. If I could trade my Nexus of Fate for a foil Nikki B, I would do that today right now. Like it's it subsidizes the cost of a box. What it does is incentivizes people to buy from their LGS instead of buying from Astrop or Amazon. And it subsidizes the cost of your box. Your box is cheaper because you have a card that's between worth five and 40, I guess, that you can then sell or trade or just have. And it made your box cheaper. So it really doesn't make sense not to buy 
boxes from your LGS that these cards exist, but all everyone is fixated on is how bad it could be that everybody doesn't have the ability to crack these in packs. I cannot say that I have special knowledge about how many Nexuses there are. I'm just saying that there's no data that indicates there aren't as many copies of Nexus of Fate just loose as there would be for Mythics in packs in basically all the M19 that's going to get busted before people get sick of busting M19 and go buy different sets instead. I think I share your opinion because I the card itself, it's okay. I think people are just getting really worked up because there was one really, really good deck. But if you think about it in the grand scheme, do you really want to be spending all that time playing Turbo Fog? Probably not. It's it's not about Turbo It's about the precedent of having yeah. a $100 card that you can't get in a booster. I know, but I, I lived through Nolothny Dragon too. It was like that card sucked then, Arena, all those things. I think... I think you're absolutely right. I think that Nexus of Fate is a one thing that they expected would be like a neat card, but did not expect was going to become like a weird powerhouse out of nowhere. And I'll bet you the next few cards we get are like 12 casting cost legends that do really obscure corner case things that are neat in Brawl or EDH, but are not going to show up at all. What's wrong with Firesong and Sunspeaker? They're they're a pretty good rate. They do something that's really never been done before in Boros. They didn't need to create an entire pre-con just to give us fire song and sunspeaker and the art is great they came out nothing bad happened and everyone's like soon in another couple months i'll get the same number of retweets complaining about the next card as i did about this card even though nothing bad happened with fire song and sunspeaker if this is the worst that's going to happen if nexus of fate is our worst case scenario i can live with it it's fine if you yeah. if you're the kind of person that has to run out and buy four copies of Nexus of Fate because you saw it on the Pro Tour and you want to play that Turbo Fog deck, yeah, I guess you can't do that cheaply. I guess you got to pay out a lot of money if you're that specific exact person. And I guess being that person feels real bad right now. You had the opportunity to buy these at five and six and fifteen, and you didn't because you didn't you didn't want to. You didn't have the foresight to build that Turbo Fog deck. You didn't think you would i think people just want something to complain about I, uh, there's a lot to complain about i think wizards makes a lot of bad decisions i think nexus of fate was probably a bad decision in hindsight but i always knew it would never be as bad as everyone was pretending and here we are the worst case scenario it's not that bad they'll probably never do it again nexus of fate and all the the complaining about it has probably ensured that you're never going to get another cool promo that's that good. It'll probably be a $5 card, and it's like, great, do I buy my box at 120 from the LGS and get a $5 card, or do I just buy it for 99 bucks from Mass Drop? And congrats, you, you, you have less incentive to buy from your LGS. So I think it was never as bad as everybody predicted, and it still isn't. And I realize that people are upset, but they were going to be upset about something. <sighs> and that's a controversial opinion, but I I don't care. No, I mean, I think you're actually pretty much dead on. I'd like It's almost like Urza's block versus Mar Mercadian masks, right? Like, Urza's, we did something really new and everybody got, you know, up in it. And the next time they're going to play it so safe that nobody is going to want it at all. I don't know what their buy a box for Ravnica was going to be. And I know that they would have one because it's Ravnica. They're going to have to have one. But it's probably not going to be anything cool. It'll probably be a legendary creature from one of the guilds. I think so. I I, I think they don't have to pivot because I think it was just going to be a legendary person. It'll be someone from the guild. It'll either be like somebody we've already seen, like Taza or somebody like that. 
Guilds of Ravnica will be an EDH thing, it won't even be an issue. And it'll probably still be a decent card. I'll probably get a like five or ten bucks and you'll be like, hey, my box is cheaper or someone at the LGS will trade it to you because they'll be glad to get anything out of it and it'll be fine. I, I think the only value in the Nexus of Fate controversy is whipping people into a frenzy so that you can get retweets. Fair. <laughs> It's just, it's not even worth the effort. There's so many other things to be talking about in Magic than Nexus of Fate, for God's sakes. Well, I mean, well, I, th- I think it's a, I think it's a legitimate gripe, but I, I think they're wrong. You think so? I guess we'll see. Let's see what the community has to say. If you guys have anything you want to tell us about Nexus of Fate or any of the other things, please feel free to tweet at us at Commander in MTG or me personally at Gearpuri Gears. I'm not really a financial person, but I will definitely give you a shoulder to cry on. Jason, if our listeners wanted to reach you or uh, read what you've written, I know that you told us about Gathering Magic or Cool Stuff Inc. rather and EDH Rec, but where where else can they find you on Twitter or anything like that? I'm on Twitter at Jason E. Alt. I do social media for EDH Rec, so I guess I can sneakily be reached cool. there. I'm, I'm just around, right? I'm on Reddit. I'm just in the community. I'm still up in the community doing doing magic stuff. Yeah, and I'm really uh, thankful that you joined us today. It was super cool to talk to you. I've been a big fan for a long time, so it's very oh, exciting. Oh, don't make it weird. Wait, wait. <laughs> you made it Man, weird. Man, I'm editing this. I can make it as weird as I want to. Yeah, that's uh, a good point. You can make it sound like I gracefully took the compliment like an adult instead of... <laughs> yeah, it'll be like, thank you so much. <laughs> you are truly a nexus of... <laughs> yeah, anyway. Listeners, you rock. Thanks for hanging out with us, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. Special thanks to our patrons who support us by donating so that we can keep improving and keep putting out shows every week. We genuinely appreciate you. Without your continued support, we could not do this, and we are so, so grateful for it. And Jason, if you'd be so kind as to take us out. Keep your stick on the ice. I think that was one of the ones. (laughs) Yeah. That was given to us by the great Graham from LRR. Thanks so much, Jason. Really appreciate it. See you guys later. You can reach us by going to our website, commanderandmtg.com. Our email is cast at commanderandmtg.com. You can find us on all of the social medias by searching for Commander and MTG Podcast. This episode was edited by David Mitchell. Our theme song was created for the podcast by Nate Burgess. Our logo was created for the podcast by Mr. Picto with assistance from Kelly DeLuca. You can find more art from Mr. Picto by going to mrpicto.co.uk. Special thanks to tech whizzes Jesse Thompson and Graham Frank and to Justin for the server space. Commander and MTG Podcast is unofficial fan content permitted under the fan content policy. It has not been approved or endorsed by Wizards. Portions of the materials used are property of Wizards of the Coast. Copyright Wizards of the Coast, LLC.